This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's presentation, Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery, Understanding Addiction. In this presentation, we're going to learn about addiction, the prevalence, cause, and functions. Sometimes when we're working with clients, they don't um, really understand where the addiction came from or their loved ones don't understand the function that the addiction serves. And in order to get rid of an addiction or addictive behaviors, we have to understand what the benefits are and how prevalent it is um, helps normalize this behavior or this issue for people so they don't think like they're the only one that has this problem. And we're going to develop an understanding of how addictive behavior, regardless of the origin, often ends up being a form of self-medication. And finally, we'll explore a few different approaches to addressing addiction in our patients. So the prevalence of addiction. And when I give the quizzes and when I do these presentations, um, I try not to get really nitpicky about data. So I don't want you to get stressed about remembering the exact numbers. What I want you to do is get the overall idea that 16.3 million adults ages 18 and older had an alcohol use disorder in 2014. Now, approximately 2.4 million people get treatment for substance abuse, and that includes alcoholism and drug addiction, 2.4 million get treatment every year. So you can see where there's a huge disparity between the number of people who have a substance use or an addictive disorder and the number of people who are actually getting treatment. Drug addiction. In 2013, an estimated 24.6 million Americans, or 9.4% of the population, had used an illicit drug in the past month. Now, does that mean that they had developed an addiction? No. But it does mean that they were willing to take the step to risk getting in legal trouble in order to use illicit drugs. Um, we know that illicit drugs tend to be more powerful in some ways than a lot of the recreational legal drugs. And you can argue whether alcohol is less harmful or more harmful than some of them. But, you know, I want you to get an idea. We're talking about millions and millions and millions of Americans. And right here, all we're talking about is alcohol, alcoholism and drug addiction. All of the addictive behaviors, and this is a really interesting article, this one that I linked to, um, the third link on the page. Um, it looked at gambling addiction, food binge eating addiction, sex addiction, um, the stats that we do know and what we can glean because we don't have really good data on some of your behavioral addictions, in addition to alcohol and drug addiction. And they ran some analyses, and the short version is about 47% of the U.S. adult population, we're not talking worldwide, we're talking about 47% of the U.S. adult population suffers from an addictive behavior with serious negative consequences in a 12-month period. So during any 12-month period, roughly one in two people may be struggling with some sort of compulsive or addictive behavior. That's a lot to think about. Um, and, and we really want to look at the definition of addictive behaviors here. Remembering this is not necessarily the person who is substance dependent and needing to go to detox. This may be the person who is binge eating to cope with negative feelings and they're gaining a lot of weight and they've developed type 2 diabetes because of their um, 
coping style, if you will. Um, these are people who are using this behavior to the extent, which we'll talk about more in a minute, um, that they've actually thrown their neurotransmitters out of whack and they're having a hard time figuring out how to get out of this addictive cycle because a lot of things that used to be pleasurable just aren't pleasurable anymore because the body has adapted to the influx of dopamine and dopamine surges that the addiction causes. So what is an addiction? The use of a pleasurable activity or substance. And oh, the other one they included in there was internet addiction because that actually did make the DSM now. Um, so the use of a pleasurable activity or substance. We've got to figure out they're using something and generally it's one thing or that one thing plus something else to escape emotional or physical pain. So they're depressed, they're apathetic, they're anxious, they're angry, something's going on. And here's the key that continues to be used despite causing problems in one or more areas of life. So if we're talking about health-related behaviors, if we're talking about someone who's smoking, tobacco addiction, if it's causing them health consequences, then potentially we could look at it as an addiction. Now, is this going to keep them from working? No. Um, and, and the other thing I do want to point out, and I don't have the specific statistic for you right now, the other thing that I want to point out is that the majority of people who have addictions are employed full-time, they're working, they, quote, look just like everybody else. This is something that goes on behind closed doors. Now, it may be at home, it may be behind closed doors in the bathroom at work, it may be on their lunch break, it could be infiltrating multiple times of day in multiple areas of their life, but generally you're not going to look at someone and go, oh, yeah, they're an addict. Uh, the majority of addicts really hide it pretty well until they start to hit bottom. Um, so any behavior that is used to escape from emotional or physical pain in lieu of a healthy, quote-unquote, coping me mechanism that continues to be used despite causing problems in one or more area of life. So that person is saying, this behavior is more rewarding than my marriage. This behavior is more rewarding than my job. This behavior is more rewarding or more needed than my health. Now, that's kind of an interesting way to look at things. So when we start trying to motivate our clients, we really want to look at what are the consequences of this behavior. In addition to what are the benefits, obviously you're choosing this over all these other things for a reason, so help me understand what it does for you, and let's see if we can figure out another way to meet that need that won't cause you problems in other areas of your life. Other things that we look for in addiction is tolerance, needing more of the substance or activity or combining substances or activities to get the same level of relief or to get the same feeling. We've talked in other presentations about how the brain is really cool in some ways because it tries to maintain homeostasis. It tries to maintain a balance. So if you are constantly dumping in excess dopamine and you're having these pleasure surges, if you will, the brain is going to shut down some of those receptors because it says that's not the level of dopamine we're supposed to maintain. When those receptors get shut down, then normal activities don't make someone as happy anymore. And even the addictive behaviors, once the body adjusts to it, the addictive behaviors by themselves don't make them as happy anymore. In substance abuse, in addiction recovery, one of the things we talk about is chasing the high because it's never as good as the first time. The body, even after that first hit or that first you know, rush of dopamine, may start adjusting the neurochemicals and shutting down some of the um, uh, receptors. 
So in order to get that same feeling, that same level of relief, that same high, whatever the person is calling it, they need to ramp it up a little bit. So instead of gambling the nickel slots, maybe they need to go to the dollar slots. Or I don't know much about gambling, but they need to up the ante a little bit. So there's more risk, but also the potential for more reward. When you're talking about substances, obviously people start combining substances um, in order to get a higher level of re relief or in, in order to get more dopamine in there. So they're just really charging those um, uh, neurons and getting the dopamine surge and increasing it in any way possible. Withdrawal, physical withdrawal. Now, not everybody has physical withdrawal from certain substances, but most people will feel exhausted. You know, I said the brain adjusts and the brain turns down or shuts down some of the receptors. So the norepinephrine and the dopamine aren't getting into the body in, at the same level as they were prior to the addiction's beginning. So people may experience physical withdrawals, even from behavioral addictions, of just apathy and depression and um, not having any energy. Because we know that norepinephrine, also known as adrenaline, gives us our get up and go. So if you're get up and go, done, got up and went, um, that reminds me of an old um, schoolhouse rock. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Those of you who are old enough to remember schoolhouse rock remembers the uh, little nu nutrition guy. Uh, anyhow, withdrawal can be physical. And it doesn't have to be what you're thinking of with DTs and vomiting and the type of withdrawal symptoms that we see with alcohol and opiate withdrawal. It can be a little bit more subtle, but the body is still undergoing some withdrawal symptoms because the brain has adjusted. It may just be neurochemically, but there are changes going on. Psychologically, though, the withdrawal can just be agonizing because the person has these cravings. You know, as they start to not have enough dopamine, as they start to feel apathetic, as they start to feel depressed or anxious, they want to make it go away. And they can't make it go away, which stresses them out even more. So they get even more ramped up and even more anxious and even more negatively charged, if you will. Um, and they kind of get stuck in this pattern. They will miss it. They may be afraid of going without it. They may, you know, when they were in their addiction, by the time they get to the point of treatment, something has changed their mind and identified the fact that this behavior is not as rewarding as these other things. So they probably have some losses. They probably have some challenges that are the direct result of the addiction or addictive behaviors that they're going to have to face. So not only is all the stuff that they were originally trying to escape from probably still there, but they've also created a whole nother mess of problems that's there that they're going to have to deal with. So psychologically, people can get depressed, anxious, overwhelmed, resentful, irritable, all those sorts of things. When that happens, if we're preventing them from accessing the one thing that they know how to use to escape the pain, um, they're kind of left floundering like a fish out of water. In early recovery, we need to make sure that people have access to some things that will help. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about medications. It could be a sponsor. It could be a coach. It could be a counselor. Um, but in this early recovery period, especially in order to help them deal with the psychological withdrawal, um, and some places you can read about uh, post-acute withdrawal symptoms, but uh, it's important to make sure that they have supports available 
to help them through this psychological withdrawal period until they get to the point where they go, I think I can do this clean and sober. So what are the causes of addiction? You know, Jim Bob may have had a great life, and all of a sudden, and I use that term in quotes, um, all of a sudden, he became an alcoholic. And you're like, where did that come from? Jim Bob may have had a really crappy life and started using when he was nine years old. That can happen too. So there are some um, theories about where addiction develops. One of them is a neurochemical imbalance. So the first question you ask is, well, how did they get out of whack? One way that happens is excessive recreational use of a substance or activity. If people engage in excessively pleasurable behaviors for an extended period of time, even if it's not to escape, you know, maybe they were um, just part of the party crowd and they were going out every night, they were drinking every night, they were engaging in all kinds of stuff that got lots of dopamine secreted every night. At a certain point, the brain is going to go, dude, I need a break. I need, you need to ramp it down a little bit. Um, and I call this sort of the party pooper philosophy. When the brain goes, I can't be this happy all the time. It's, it's burning me out. So we need to shut down some of the receptors. Then the person starts feeling apathetic and they're like, well, what happened? I used to be the life of the party and now I get up and I don't even want to get out of bed. This is really uncool. Um, the depression may start to set in, anxiety, but there are also other cognitive and physical symptoms of this change in neurotransmitters that can include fatigue, um, difficulty concentrating, difficulty getting through the day. So then the person may start to feel hopeless and helpless, and you see the road we're going down here. The other neurochemical imbalance place that it can start is the use of a substance or activity to eliminate feelings of depression, anxiety, stress, anger, or pain, the open wound theory. And it can be something that came on over time, like chronic stress, or it can be something that happens suddenly, like um, losing a loved one and just not being able to wrap your head around it, where the grief is just absolutely intolerable and palpable. I call this the open wound theory because the person has this open wound and they need to close it up. They need to make it go away um, and they need to stop the pain. Uh, it's, this is not when they're working on sort of debriding the wound. They just want to make the pain stop right now. And the addiction ends up being the Novocaine, if you will, or whatever they use to numb up things. When that starts to happen, then they're not dealing with whatever it was that caused their emotional turmoil. So every time they start to sober up, it's like ripping the Band-Aid off again. And they want to put the, they want to put the uh, numbing agent back on because it's too painful to deal with. So people who have an open wound that sort of kicks off their addiction um, or their addictive behaviors, we want to look at how can we help you deal with that so you can start to move through those stages of grief or move through the anxiety to a place where you can deal with life on life's terms. So when you have a neurochemical imbalance, it leads to unsuccessful efforts to cut down or quit. If you cut down on your pleasure-producing activities and your brain has already turned down the thermostat and is not secreting as many pleasure-producing hormones, it feels ugly. It feels gray. As you know, I've said one of my clients put it to me. He's like, life is just gray. There's no highs, there's no lows, there's no color, it's just bleh. And, and he's like, I can't go on like that 
forever. You know, I've been clean and sober for six weeks now, and there's still no color. And uh, I couldn't tell him that the color was going to come back necessarily anytime soon because he'd been using really hardcore for many, many years. But these unsuccessful efforts to cut down or quit often happen before somebody comes to treatment with us. And one of the things that we want to um, identify is the fact that these efforts to cut down or quit sort of created a sense of learned helplessness for them. They tried to do it and they failed. So now they may feel like they can't do it or they can't do without the addiction. We want to look at why did they fail? Okay, so you tried. That's awesome. Why did you fail? What made it unsuccessful? Most likely, they didn't understand why they were using or the ramifications of their use. I mean, they knew they started drinking when their spouse walked out on them, but they didn't understand that, you know, three months later when they were still drinking themselves to sleep every night, they had started to mess with the neurochemistry and make it harder for them to feel positive emotions like happiness and feel energized because their norepinephrine was also kind of blunted a little bit. They start spending more time and or money thinking about engaging in or recovering from use. As they start to feel more and more hopeless and helpless, the negative, the dysphoria, the negative feelings start to intensify. If they had physical pain, it will probably also intensify in the form of intensifying whatever that original pain was, plus migraines, backaches, difficulty sleeping. So they're tired. They can't sleep. They're irritable. They're depressed. Yeah, their go-to is to try to get to whatever that substance is. And it takes more and more money and more and more time and more and more different combinations to chase that high and achieve it. So they're spending more and more time on it, which leads to neglect of important areas of functioning like work, their kids, and their personal health. All of this leads to depression, anxiety, and anger, and more use to escape. So you can see it's a pretty predictable pattern, you know, what starts it for different people may be different. And the fact that uh, we're just now starting to understand the impact of behavioral addictions is really important because a lot of times people have been engaging in behavioral addictions, internet addiction, porn addictions, um, eating to self-soothe, binging, purging, exercise addiction, other things prior to going to something heavier. You know, if you want to look at it as exercise can be a gateway drug. Um, Those of us who are avid exercisers, when we don't get to exercise, we do miss that endorphin rush. Um, So if somebody happened to be addicted to exercise, that means going and doing it to excess and despite it causing problems, this is the person who has shin splints and they're still in there running on the treadmill or they've got like three different types of braces on and they're still in the gym trying to make something happen. That's the person that we want to kind of look at and go, what are you getting out of this or what are you not getting that you're still desperately trying to achieve? So a note about cravings. Cravings are those persistent thoughts or desires for a rewarding behavior. Cravings happen for, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, two reasons, to produce pleasure or eliminate pain. We call these in in behaviorism positive and negative reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is adding pleasure somehow. We're adding something. My example here, as it usually is, is chocolate. Um, So if something produces pleasure, people are going to crave it. They're like, oh, I want to do that again. The other thing is to eliminate something painful. 
Um, this is called negative reinforcement because it's removing something unpleasant. Think about when you're sitting at the dinner table and you're like, okay, telling your kids you can get up from the table if you eat two bites of your vegetables and then you don't have to eat anymore. And they're like, score. Um, so they dig through and they find the two pieces of corn that are in their vegetables. But, you know, you made your bed. Eliminating something unpleasant can be just as rewarding as getting something pleasant. If you can combine the two, if you can eliminate pain and produce pleasure, then woohoo, that's like a double whammy. We need to remember this when we're working with clients in recovery too, because we don't want to look at the, just the addiction as having the double whammy reinforcement. We want to make sure our interventions also eliminate pain and some of them also produce pleasure. People want to have fun. People want to have pleasure and feel good. We need to help them figure out how to do that, not just make the anxiety go away. Triggers. Triggers remind you of the addiction and kick off a craving. Um, if you walk into somewhere, you know, I, I'm, I'm at a loss right now, you walk into your favorite restaurant and that reminds you of your favorite food and you start craving your favorite food before you can even get seated. That kind of gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Last night, um, I was watching TV before I went to bed, and they had an ad on television for food, and it looked absolutely amazing. So that reminded me of similar foods that I'd eaten and kicked off a craving, and I'm like, oh, thankfully I was too lazy to get up and get dressed to go get it. But <laughs> different things can remind you of cravings. People. If somebody used to use with someone, or if we're talking about sex addiction, if somebody used to have sex with somebody, um, those, that can remind you of the addiction and kick off a craving. Places, places that you were where you engaged in the addictive behavior, places that you were when you started experiencing dysphoria, some sort of negative feeling, and you started thinking about your addiction, um, or you know, places that remind you of those places. So you can extrapolate and you can find triggers everywhere, which is one of the points I want to drive home is finding triggers is not just as simple as making a simple little list because there are people, places, and things that will remind you of people, places, and things that will remind you of the addiction. So if a client says they started craving and they didn't know why, then we need to start looking at what was going on. Did it remind you of something? Did it cause you some sort of emotional distress? What was going on and why, why did this happen? To help them understand where these cravings come from. Once they understand it and they start learning how to sort of dissect the behavior, it makes so much more sense and it's very empowering because then they can start saying, I had a craving and I really didn't expect it, but I can see where it came from and this is how I can address it. So things that remind you of an addiction. And this can be things you see on TV. This can be you know, anything. Emotions. If someone typically, when they get stressed out, they drink, they smoke, they go to the bar, they fill in the blank, then if they have a dysphoric emotion, they may feel that. Some people began using when they were happy. They started using at parties. So even happy emotions or going to parties might trigger a craving. I don't want to... Focus on just negative things triggering cravings. It can be happy things. Um, maybe for, for one of my clients, the birth of his first child was just a ridiculously happy day for him. And he went out and he celebrated and 
during the course of celebrating and getting intoxicated, he realized that now he had another mouth to feed and another person to be responsible for, and the anxiety hit him. And before he knew it, two days had passed, and he hadn't been home, and he'd been out drinking. So there are things that can happen that are positive and or negative. Memories and habits. And habits I really want to talk about. Um, my mother, when I was younger, was a three-pack-a-day smoker. She would get up in the morning, and before she'd even get her feet on the floor, she'd have a cigarette in her mouth. Not because she needed one necessarily, but that's what she did. She'd be smoking when she put on her makeup. She'd be smoking while she ate. She'd be smoking when she was in the car. That was just a habit she did with her hand. Um, and not to say that it didn't have some psychological and physiological consequences to it, because obviously it did. We know that nicotine and um, has a lot of effects on the person. But one of the issues that a lot of people who are trying to quit smoking face is the fact that they're so used to doing it. Um, another habit, when I cook, and, you know, I'll go into the kitchen, and I'm one of those people who I taste everything. I can have an entire meal before the meal's even finished if I don't pay attention to what I'm doing because I'll taste it. I also don't measure anything. I'm like a pinch of this and a dash of that. So. <laughs> but my cooking habits aside, I won't even realize that I'm tasting things and uh, then I'll get to mealtime and I'll be hungry or I'll, I won't be hungry. And I'm like, you know, it's mealtime. I should be hungry. And then I start thinking back. I'm like, you know what? I think I probably ate an entire meal already. So these habits, these, this mindless behavior that we get into that we're just so used to doing, um, we need to figure out a way to interrupt those. For me, for the, um, when I cook, I try to measure a little bit more, and I also either talk on the phone or I chew gum, because I'm not going to taste anything when I'm chewing gum. That's nasty. Uh, and it also stops, because if I wanted to taste something, obviously I'd have to get rid of the gum, and you know, that's a whole step in there. Uh, Encourage your clients to figure out any habitual reasons they use because breaking habits is a whole lot easier than te teaching new coping skills. It's not going to fix it. You know, what they're doing is more than just a habit, but if they can start feeling like they've got some awareness and some control, it's very empowering. So the functions of the addiction, to produce feelings of pleasure, euphoria, and happiness when none exist. This can be by altering brain chemicals to produce feelings of happiness, you know, increasing serotonin, increasing dopamine, um, but it can also increase those endogenous opioids. So if somebody has chronic pain, it may make some of that pain go away. And we know, and I'm not going to get into it right now, but there's a connection between opioids and dopamine. So when they start feeling better, the dopamine's secreted, and it's sort of like this, ah, remember the old Calgon take me away bath commercials? That's kind of what they're getting. Uh, so the addiction is actually providing a per serving a purpose. In recovery, we don't necessarily want them to go out and try to alter their brain chemicals, but we do want them to figure out what else could produce feelings of pleasure. Now, think about it. They're under a lot of stress and dysphoria. We're just going to call it stress for right now. Their stress level is at a 10, so they are just really at the limit of what they can experience. And their pleasure, in order to feel pleasure when you've got that much stress, it takes a whole lot of energy to find something that's going to make you happy. If we help them reduce their stress so they're not exhausted, so they're not drained all the time, do you think it would be easier for them to find pleasure in smaller things and find moments of pleasure uh, 
as they start to recover. Because anything that we give them to do, any suggestions we make, are likely not going to equal the dopamine rush of a hit from a crack pipe. That's just the way it is. I mean, it's reality. So we have to look at that happy medium. Yes, what we options we have in the, the sobriety world are probably not as intense as the options um, in the chemical world. However, let's see how we can make the most out of the pleasurable activities we have. One of the, my favorite things in the world is just going out and watching chipmunks. I love chipmunks. And they're the cutest little, kind of little um, uh, squirrel rat sort of looking things, but they're hyper and they're high strung. And I just hear Alvin and the chipmunks playing in the back of my head whenever I see them. The normal person would probably look at a chipmunk and go, yeah, that's a furry rat. <laughs> but if you take time to look at their little bitty hands and their little bitty noses, they can be very, very cute. And that's what I want my clients to start recognizing. I want them to start seeing the small things that can make them happy. It may not make them happy for an hour, but if it can make them happy for 10 seconds, well, that's 10 more seconds of happiness than they had before. It works to numb emotional or physical pain when nothing else works, again, by altering brain chemicals. There are alternatives that we can help people try to look for for pain management. As far as emotional pain, sometimes people need to learn how to distract themselves. And dialectical behavior therapy provides a lot of really awesome tools for helping people tolerate distress and not feel as much emotional pain to get through it. Acceptance and commitment therapy is also another approach that will help people accept what is instead of fighting against it, which tends to make it a lot harder to um, deal with. And addiction ultimately helps the person survive when they cannot tolerate the pain and they feel overwhelmed and hopeless and helpless. And that's what I reiterate to my clients a lot of times is the fact that they were doing the best they could with the tools they had to survive at that point in time. So let's look at those tools, sharpen a few of them up, figure out how to make them work better because they have some strengths, no doubt. But let's also look at, you know, what obstacles, what problems can be eliminated that they don't have to deal with anymore. And let's look at some new tools that may help them view something a little bit differently. Self-medication hypothesis. A lot of times addictions, and we've talked about this so far, ends up being a form of self-medication because through the excessive engagement in pleasurable activities, the brain has used neurotransmitters faster than they can be made. They're, and these are all hypotheses. We can't really prove them um, because they're going on in the brain of a live person. But they use neurotransmitters faster than they can be made. The brain shuts down the movie, shuts down the receptors to conserve neurotransmitters and prevent the body from being overstimulated. Think about being in a movie theater. You know, you go to opening night and there's just a flood of people. Eventually, they have to shut down the gates because it's a fire hazard for anybody else to be in the theater. Same sort of analogy can be made for the, the uh, changes in the neurotransmitters caused by addiction. Or an imbalance is created between their neurotransmitters, leading to an inability to feel pleasure without some sort of external stimulation. And that imbalance can be caused by brain damage. It can be caused by addiction. It can be caused by a whole host of things. You know, we regularly encounter things that briefly 
change the balance of our neurotransmitters, which is why we have moments of rage. We have moments of really strong anxiety. We have moments of anger. We have moments of, you know, fill in the blank with all those emotion words that you learned in school. That's a change. Every one of those emotions represents a change in the neurotransmitter balance. But then after that emotion is felt and dealt with or whatever the case is, the brain balances back out to this steady state, the warm bath that I always talk about. You know, you're not too hyped up and you're not too apathetic. You're just kind of there doing okay. So let's think about law enforcement. At first, when cops start working, hearing the tones, which is the sound they hear right before they're supposed, right before a hot call comes out, and running code, which means having the sirens on, gets that person's adrenaline pumping. They start to hear their heartbeat in their ears, they get tunnel vision, and they are just 100% go. That's not really safe, but that is a huge adrenaline dump. After a while, the body turns down the sensitivity of that adrenaline thermostat, and they hear, hear tones, and they've learned that 70% of the time, in most places, the tones, it's a hot call, but it's not going to end up being a huge big deal. And running code is just like, you know, running a bath for them. It's just like, fine, put on the lights and sirens so we can get people to get out of our way. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, this is what happens when you come from a family of cops. You get a little callous. Anyhow, after a while, the body adjusts so the person doesn't get burned out. This protects them because adrenaline prepares them for fight or flight. The brain learns that most of the time, it's not that big of a deal. It's been there, done that, let's do it again. The brain now requires something more intense. In law enforcement, and different agencies may call it something different, the emergency squawk is a special button that has to be activated on the, on the uh, police officer's radio that indicates the officer's in trouble. And the only time that goes off is if the cop's been shot or if they are pinned down somehow and they need emergency assistance. And that is 99 times out of 100 an actual real emergency. Um, thankfully, it rarely happens, so people don't habituate to it. Roller coasters. So if you've never been a cop, if you haven't been around cops, let's think about roller coasters. Initially, roller coasters can provide a rush of adrenaline and dopamine because you are the conqueror. You did it. That was awesome. What a rush. You beat death. The brain has no schema to associate with roller coasters. So when you're going downhill at 80 miles per hour with no control, it sends out the fight or flight response. It says, dude, are you really sure you should be doing this? After you ride it several times, the brain learns there's no threat. It's like, okay, you know, I know what's going to happen. It's going to be fun, but it is not going to be the same level of thrill that it was before. And quit sending as much adrenaline and dopamine. It doesn't want the brain to get overstimulated. To get that same rush, the person must ride a more thrilling coaster, combine it with another excitatory activity or substance, or a friend of mine closes their eyes, oh my gosh, it makes me sick to even think about it, closes my eyes when she goes down the roller coaster, because then she can't see what's coming up. She can kind of anticipate, because she slows down right before they start going really fast. Anyhow, um, but that's her way of chasing the rush for the roller coasters and gambling initially there's a tension building phase during the gameplay the person is already in that fight mode they want to win they want to conquer there's a cognitive challenge standing between them and the reward when they win the body secretes dopamine and adrenaline to help them learn this was successful i want to do it again and i want to do it more 
if I could win $20, I bet I could win. And this is the way the addicted brain works. If I could win $20, I bet if I triple my bet, I can win $60 or maybe even $120. Um, so the, the brain starts going, what can we do to get a bigger rush? Over time, the brain again turns down the sensitivity to preserve the balance of brain chemicals. So to get the same high, the person must take a greater risk or win a bigger reward. Approaches to recovery. Different ex approaches to explore. Eliminate things causing the imbalances in brain chemicals, uh, the addictive behavior. <laughs> Ideally, we want a period of abstinence. Even if it's not a behavior the person can abstain from completely, uh, we need to look at how to reduce that those dopamine surges. Um, if we're talking about food addiction, obviously you're not going to tell them to fast for three weeks because that's ill-advised. Uh, but we need to look at what foods do you binge on and how can you control your binging. If the person has the ability to do it, and most people don't, unless they're like college students, not having food in the house so then they have to go out to get their meals is one way to start arresting that behavior. So we want to try to eliminate the frequency of the addictive behavior as much as possible. We want to address sleep disturbances so they can rest, recover, recuperate, and Get rid of any fatigue that's caused simply by not having enough sleep. Identify negative thoughts that are maintaining the anxiety, depression, and anger. Cognitive behavioral interventions, great here. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, any of these cognitive-based approaches, superb. Address nutritional imbalances. Send them to a nutritionist or their um, medical doctor in order to make sure that they're eating a healthy diet. You can also refer them to websites online. Obviously, again, do not prescribe any nutritional interventions unless you're a registered dietitian, um, but you can point them to resources where they can educate themselves on what a healthy diet looks like. And then address controllable stressors. So all of these things, what we're doing is we're trying to eliminate some of those stressors to free up some energy so they actually have energy to feel happy. And then we want to strengthen and add coping skills and positive social relationships. Start by strengthening. Ask them about exceptions. In the past, when you've been happy, what's been different? What did you do differently? What things have made you happy in the past and how can you do them now? In the past, when you've encountered this type of stressor, how have you worked to try to cope with it and what helped? Maybe it didn't do the whole thing, but what helped? So start identifying those exceptions and those strengths because then they will see that they're resourceful and we can help them see that they've tried to do it, they've tried to survive, and with a little bit of help, you know, we can collaborate and figure out how to make those strengths stronger. Two-pronged treatment. Eliminate the addictive behaviors. Pick one or two areas the addiction has been messing up and or covering up and start addressing them. So we want to pick one or two of these stressors. We can't address the whole shebang at one time. That's just not possible even in residential treatment. So let's pick one or two things to really focus on. A person with depression who's not currently using is not going to stay clean very long unless reasonable other alternatives are available for them to use to deal with their depression and to start feeling happy. A person with depression who continues to use an addictive behavior and have those excessive dopamine surges isn't going to feel much better because the brain chemistry is going to stay wonky. So we need to address the mental health. I know I sound like a broken record. The mental health and the addiction concurrently. We can't just 
treat one and assume the other is going to spontaneously remit. Addiction develops over time as a result of brain changes and or increasing stress problems, depression, or anxiety. I put those words in quotes because that's generally what our clients use to describe what's going on in their life. I'm stressed out. Okay. Tell me what that looks like to you because stress for me is probably different than stress for you. Recovery involves identifying and eliminating activities and behaviors that are keeping the brain chemicals out of balance, developing effective ways to deal with what has been, to date, unmanageable. And I do emphasize that. Whatever is going on or was going on that's been unmanageable, guess what? The two of us work together. We will find a way to figure out how to deal with that. So to date, it's been unmanageable. That's, that's the way it was. But now we're going to move forward. And you have the strength and you have the skills to deal with this. You just need a little help. And patience, compassion, and de determination. Patience and progress, not perfection. If my clients make some progress every day, every week, that is super awesome. I don't expect them to be perfect. I don't expect them to necessarily have great days every day or even good days every day at, at the beginning. If they can have I didn't use days in the first couple of weeks, I'm really pretty doggone happy. They need to develop compassion for themselves. Again. Progress, not perfection. Don't beat yourself up over mistakes. Learn from them and move on. And determination to get back up on that horse because that horse may buck you off a few times. That doesn't necessarily mean an all-out relapse. It can mean you just wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And that's when you encourage your clients to reach out and say, I'm having some self-doubt right now or I don't know if I can do this anymore. Help me. Our clients are not used to asking for help. And they're even less used to asking for help and getting it. So patience, compassion, and determination, in addition to working as a collaborative team to identify what is keeping this person stuck, is going to go a long way toward the recovery process. Addiction almost never occurs without depression, anxiety, anger, guilt, and or grief. These things may not have existed prior to, remember I said the party pooper um, hypothesis, that I called it, um, they may have been perfectly happy and great and just living the life, and, but they didn't realize that they were creating a neurochemical imbalance. Once the substances or the neurochemical imbalance is there, there's going to be some dysphoria of some sort. We need to figure out how to help them deal with it because when they quit using, that dysphoria is not just going to go away. The body's not going to go, oh, you quit using three hours ago? All right, we can feel happy now. It takes some time, and they're going to have to deal with some of the stuff that they don't want to face that may have occurred during their addiction. Clinically significant anxiety or stress, as a lot of clients call it, or depression also rarely occurs without the presence of some addictive behaviors, some sort of coping, whether it's smoking or um, self-medication through eating or self-medication with anti-anxiety meds or herbs. We want to pay attention. If our client comes in with high levels of anxiety, we want to pay attention to what they've been using. Um, herbs like valerian and uh, kava are sometimes recommended online for anxiety, but if they're using them to excess or if they're using something like Benadryl just to help them sleep every single night, we might want to talk about the function of that. 
Addictive behaviors are an ineffective way of coping and almost always cause more problems in the long run. We're not going to lecture our clients about this because they know it. Um, but it is important for us to understand that uh, it was a method of trying to cope. Ineffective, but they were trying. Effective addiction treatment has to focus on identifying and addressing the causes of the pain or dysphoria for the individual. And please remember, please, stopping use is not the same as recovery. If somebody says they quit drinking, that's great. That's awesome. I'm glad. But that's not the same as changing your cognitions and being nice to yourself and being happy. There's a very big difference between happiness and what we call sobriety and recovery, however you want to label it, and just not using. Recovery is creating a lifestyle in which you feel happy more often than not. You're physically comfortable most of the time, and you don't need to escape or numb physical or emotional pain. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.